Well, with that, uh, let's, let's now get our hearts ready for the, for the Word of God. Um, we will shortly be starting a series on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, but before we get there, we'll, we'll get to that in September, but before we get there, because it's the new ministry year, everybody, everything gets kind of started back up in August what I wanted to do for three Sundays, not concurrently, the two, this Sunday, next Sunday, and then uh, we'll miss a Sunday, and then a Sunday after that, is to look at the topic of leadership and service in the church. And so that's where we want to begin. Uh, and we want to begin with what I would call the most definitive statement on leadership and service that we find anywhere in Scripture, that we find anywhere, obviously, uh, in human literature, and that is the paradigm that Jesus provides to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, in the context of Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. And so the, the title of our sermon for this morning is, Are You Able to Drink the Cup? Jesus' paradigm for leadership, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Well, before we get into the text, it is important for us to understand a little bit about the broader picture of Matthew's gospel. Matthew specifically presents his gospel as a a, a gospel that is dedicated to Jesus as king, to Jesus as king. We see that worked out from the very first verses to the end of the chapter. Matthew presents Jesus of Nazareth as king of the Jews. In fact, the entire literary structure, if we would examine it in in closer detail, would show that Matthew is proving to his audience that this one born in the city of Bethlehem, this one from Nazareth, this one named Jesus is the king. In fact, it's very interesting to note that it begins with this a question that is asked by the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The question is asked, the seeking is done by this group of Gentile, the, these group of Gentile wise men, all the the way from the east, who have come looking for this one whom they have heard from the scriptures which reached their hands, this one who was prophesied to be born king of the Jews. And then even when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, when we get to Jesus hanging on the cross in Matthew 27 verse 37, Pilate himself, obviously under the providence of God, hangs a declaration above Jesus' head saying, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus is the one who is the King. He is the one who, of course, is most capable and most authoritative in his discussion, his explanation of the topic of leadership. And so with that said, I I want to look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 20, and look at these verses in 20 to 28. Turn in your Bibles there, and we'll read through this, and then I'll explain how we're going to break up these verses that we study this morning. Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. 
But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In this text, in Jesus' handling of this request, in his response to this request, we we see played out for us three very important lessons related to leadership in the church, related to activity, ministry, influence among the followers of Jesus Christ. And we're going to break up this text into these three points, these three headings, which serve as important lessons for us to draw from this account. First of all, we're going to see in verses 20 to 24 the preoccupation of human ambition, the preoccupation of human ambition. It's very important for us to grasp this anytime we talk about leadership, particularly in the context of the church. Secondly, the proclamation of a contrary agenda. The proclamation of a contrary agenda in verses 25 through 27 And then finally, in the climactic statement, we'll see the precedent of the king's atonement. So as we look at those, let's begin with the first, the preoccupation of a human ambition, the preoccupation of human ambition in general. And it comes to us in this request that is made by a certain mother. We read this in verses 20 to 21, then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now, this account begins with an important word, the word then. And that ties it closely to what has just preceded. Now, we don't know how much time has taken place between what has just preceded and this particular account, but in Matthew's mind, this account and the preceding one are closely related. We are to read them in a sequential order. And what has just preceded? Well, if we look at verses 18 to 19... We read this. In fact, we can begin in verse 17 where Matthew records this. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Now, in some way, in the light of that prophecy, and Jesus has already specifically prophesied in Matthew's gospel several times that he is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. On the heels of this particular prophecy, breaks out this this request. The request of the mother is tied to what Jesus has just said. And the connection is that the disciples understand something big is going to happen. Jesus has set his face like flint to Jerusalem, and that for the Jewish people is the center of all of God's great activities. And so something big is going to happen. Now, in their minds, they completely skip the suffering part and anticipate that what is going to happen will be something big with the kingdom. But let's dig down deeper into this request that the mother makes. Now, the mother here is probably the lady in the Gospels named Salome. And we know Salome as the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. And you can, 
you can make that connection by looking at the, the Synoptic Gospels and John and connecting through these verses by way of the ladies who are there at the cross when Jesus was dying. And we find, for example, that one of them was Mary Magdalene, another one was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and another was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You also notice then in Mark 15, verse 40, that one of those ladies is named Salome, and then you find out in John 19, verse 25, that Salome was Mary's sister. And so this request comes from someone very closely connected to Jesus. This lady Salome was not just one of those faithful women that we read of in the Gospels who followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. She was actually family. Her sons are called the sons of of Zebedee, and we know from elsewhere that these are James and John, and these were fishermen who were sons of a a fisherman named Zebedee who had a a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had called these two men to follow him. And so they were actually related to Jesus through his mother, through Salome and through Mary. These would have been his cousins. So in many ways, this is a family affair. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but Notice what Salome does. Even though Salome, in a way, we could say is Jesus' aunt through Mary, his mother, she comes and she comes bowing down to him. Now, Salome has a, a virtuous aspect here in that she recognizes she is in the presence of royalty. She does what anyone would do before a king, and that is to bow down. But we ask the question, why is she the one that is coming to Jesus with this request? Why is she the one who is putting this forward? Well, perhaps her two sons were too cowardly to ask on their own, especially in light of Jesus' prior teaching on humility. You just go back to Matthew 18, and you'd see one of those great statements that Jesus makes to his disciples as they argued about greatness. He tells them to pursue humility. And so perhaps the, the sons of Salome, James and John, were just too, too cowardly to, to, to do this themselves, and so they ask that their mother would. Perhaps they put their mother up to it because they knew Jesus had a special place for women and had a, 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 a compassion for women that was notable, and perhaps they had noticed that Jesus was a lot harder on them than on the women. And so, hey, let's ask our mother. Surely Jesus will be compassionate and moved to grant us our request. Or perhaps they assume that this was a family matter. And if they could, if they could, they could take this discussion out of the context of all the disciples and simply decide this on the basis of lineage and and family connections, they would receive their, their positive answer. Well, we don't know, but Matthew does seem to indicate here that there is something that is going on here with the mother and the connection to Jesus and and her sons putting her up to this. Well, what's interesting to note, though, is immediately after she bows, the formalities of approaching a king are somewhat dispensed with. She bows down but then she issues an order. She does not make a request in the truest sense. She does not ask, but instead she issues a dictate. She gives him an order, command. She recognizes that he is king, and yet at the same time, she tells him what to do. Command that. In your kingdom, these two sons of mine might sit one on your right and one on your left. Well, we know that those two seats, the one on the right and on the left, in any administration would have been the ones of greatest prominence. They were the seats of authority in any king's administration. This request was nothing less than a a bold attempt to secure greatness 
for Salome's sons. Again, particularly striking in light of the teaching that Jesus gave as recently as Matthew chapter 18. We read in Matthew 18 that the the disciples had been arguing over who is greatest and so on and so forth. And he called the child to himself and says, and said to them, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, Salome's request was not altogether outlandish. And we have to look in the preceding context to recognize that there is some basis for her request for her sons to sit on thrones. If we go back to the end of Matthew chapter 19, which is quite close in context to the text we're looking at this morning, we would read this about Jesus' words to his disciples In Matthew 19, verse 27, so this has taken place just a little bit prior to this account, Peter had said to Jesus, Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus had just issued the prophecy that those disciples, as Jesus' personally selected men, would sit on these thrones, would be given special authority to judge, to rule over, to administrate over the nation of Israel. Jesus here is describing what will come in what's called the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, we'll come back to that a little bit later, but it is a reference to that time when Jesus will literally rule over the nation of Israel, and Jesus is saying, look, you will have a place in that administration. You will rule alongside of me. So they understood this prophecy, and they understood it literally. They anticipated the time, and probably with Jesus' talk about going to Jerusalem, they figured that this era was about to start. They figured that Jesus would usher it in. Now was the time for the regeneration of Israel, for that renewal, that making new, when Israel would receive the fulfillment of the promises of Abraham, or to Abraham, the promises that were made to David, the promises that were made in the new covenant. They were anticipating that fulfillment. But what they did not catch, what Salome and her sons and all the disciples and so many others failed to understand was the implications of Israel's rejection of this Messiah. The fact that he would come a first time for one mission before he would come this second time to sit on the throne. They could not understand the current rejection of the king by Israel. And that rejection, if we read in Matthew's gospel, starts in earnest in Matthew chapter 11. Very strong rejection that is typified by the the leaders of Israel and what they attribute to Jesus. That Rejection was strong, and Jesus, beginning then in Matthew 13, pivots his ministry to begin teaching about an important era that we're going to call the inter-advent era. They failed to recognize the implications of that inter-advent era. They failed to recognize and understand Jesus' teaching of what would his, what his administration would look like between the first and the second advents. And the fact that that administration between those two advents would look 
fundamentally different from the administration that would come after the second. And in that period of time between those advents, that administration would be looked at as one of humility. And that's why if we go back to Matthew 19, verse 30, when Jesus just prophesied about the regeneration of Israel, that he will come to sit on a throne and that the disciples would rule with him, he ends that teaching with an important but statement, an important teaching about the time before that era would begin. And Matthew 19, verse 30 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That was the request of Salome. Let's look now at the response of Jesus as we continue to dig down deeper into the problem of, 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 of human ambition. In verses 22 to 23, we read this. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now Jesus here in his response picks up a very important metaphor that we can find throughout the Old Testament. And this metaphor Jesus is now going to use to illustrate what was missing in the understanding, not just of Salome, but primarily of his own disciples. It is the metaphor of the cup. Now, in the Old Testament, that metaphor had various signs or, or meanings, nuances. It could mean that of blessing, my cup overfloweth. But it also could mean judgment, that God would pour out his judgment, like water out of a cup. Or the cup could also mean suffering. And that is what Jesus is using that metaphor for here. It is the concept of suffering. In other words, Jesus asks James and John here, are you able to suffer? That's the meaning of this text, this metaphor. Are you able to suffer? And and when we see the response of the disciples here, it indicates how flippantly they treated this because they, in one Greek word, responded to what is a very profound question. Now, we translate it into three words. We are able, but in the Greek, it reads dunamitha. It's just one answer. Are you able to suffer, James and John? Dunamitha. Yes, we are able. Yes, we are able. Able. They still had not understood the implications of, of Jesus' own suffering, the implications of Israel's rejection of their Messiah, and the fact that the regeneration of Israel would not happen there at the cross in Jerusalem. In any case, they were simply overconfident. Jesus is so compassionate and patient, he says to them then, My cup you shall drink, prophesying of the reality that suffering was inescapable. It had been ordained for them. It was to be that picture now that is to describe ministry in the inter-Advent era. My cup you shall drink. He goes on to say, but to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give. The future reward is sovereignly determined by by the Father, and it is not something to be obsessed with now. This cup of metaphor, this cup of suffering, therefore, becomes the, the metaphor for leadership and authority in this inter Advent era, the time between Jesus' first advent and his second coming. And it is so important, as we're going to see, that we realize this metaphor is for us today as well. Well, we've seen the request of a mother. We've seen the response of Jesus. Now, as we continue to see the problem of human ambition, we see the reaction of the disciples in verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, the rest of the disciples here show very little in terms of self-awareness. 
They were not indignant. As we will see throughout all the Gospels, they were not indignant because they recognized the sinful ambition of James and John, and they had no such ambition, and so were in a state of righteous anger. That is not the case. We even read in Luke's Gospel that at the Last Supper, they are still arguing over who's greatest. No, this indignation, the the word is a a strong term, a, a strong sense of displeasure. It was not over the request itself. It was over the fact that they saw James and John uh, jockeying over position and using family influence to try to, to maneuver their way up to the top. They themselves were obsessed with greatness. They themselves were obsessed with the thrones. They themselves did not understand the metaphor of the cup. And that's the problem with human ambition. We must recognize it, that even for those who spend time, considerable amount of time with Jesus, it is hard to understand this metaphor, and it's certainly hard to live out its implications. The disciples were preoccupied with that ultimate age of glory, with all the status and all the authority it would bring, but they were not focused on that intermediate era with the suffering and the humility it would require. You could say they wanted the crown without the cup. And we can look at these disciples, we can shake our heads and wonder how could that possibly be, spending so much time with one such as the Messiah and missing this point. And yet when we examine our own lives, we must confess that we want that crown so badly. And it's not necessarily in wanting the reward where the problem is. The problem is we want to bypass the cup. We don't want to have anything to do with that cup. We want to somehow skip over it and just get to the crown. Even in the here and now, we want the authority, we want the status, we want the ability to tell other people what to do. And Jesus said, no. In fact, we see his proclamation of a contrary agenda in the following Three verses, verses 25 to 27. The proclamation of a contrary agenda. Seeing as compassionately and patiently as he did this interchange with Salome, her two sons, and then the, the, the other ten disciples, Jesus now says, I'm going to teach you once again. And he proclaims to them what is these definitive words for ministry today, what is the most definitive statement on Christian leadership. Matthew records, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave revealing that the preoccupation with with greatness was was so common to all of those disciples, Jesus now addresses all of them. And this shows us that those 10 other disciples who became indignant, that the problem was theirs as well, because Jesus calls them all to himself. And now what Jesus does in this statement is he gives a very vivid antithetical parallelism between what is the world's understanding, what is the flesh's understanding of leadership, what is innate to our own flesh, what is easy for us to do, what we take as the default position, and he contrasts that with his own paradigm. Let's work through this antithesis. First of all, Jesus depicts worldly leadership with these words. First of all, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the great men of uh, exercise authority over them. He says, you know this. This is an aid to all of our experience. This isn't something that you need to go to school to learn. We learn it from our earliest days that there is this 
this pursuit of hierarchy, this pursuit of power, this abuse of authority, this presence of tyranny everywhere. He says, you know, these rulers, these rulers, they lord it over. The word literally is the first ones, the ones of primary position, the ones in first place. They have mastery over. It's an intensive verb that emphasizes this idea of top-down leadership. Jesus says, you know that's how it works in the world. You know that this is how your flesh thinks about leadership. And he says a second one. He says, the great men. Not only the first men, the first ones, but now you have the great men. And these great men exercise authority. It's another intensive verb, even having or suggesting the idea of to tyrannize. And the implication here is that when you look in the world, and when you even look at our own flesh, what is so such a default position for us is that we strive for these positions, and then we enjoy that power. And we enjoy the assertion of power and leadership over others. And when you, when you really look at yourself, and you think when you have that opportunity, when you are over someone... How much our flesh can delight in the exercise of that authority. It feels so good. And Jesus says that's exactly how it happens in the world. But notice his prohibition. He makes this statement right at the beginning of verse 26. And notice how Jesus words it. He says, it is not this way among you. It's the hinge now for this antithesis. And in five simple Greek words, Jesus declares that the world's ways are simply not part of his plan. He doesn't say it should not be this way. He doesn't say it must not be this way. Notice how definitive he is on this. He states it as a simple fact in the indicative. It is not this way among you. He couldn't be more clear that the world's ways, the world's means, the world's desires, the world's enjoyments as it comes to leadership have nothing to do with what is to be in the church. Well, what is to be in the church? Notice then the alternative that he gives, this contrary agenda that he gives is expressed in the second half, verse 26, and in verse 27, he puts it this way, but whoever wishes To become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Here is the contrary agenda. Notice he first says the great, who is whoever wishes to be great. There's a a literary chiasm that's in this text. He has just said the the great ones in in verse uh, 25, he says the great ones exercise authority over them. And then immediately he says, but whoever wishes to be great shall be your servant. He uses the term there, servant, diakonos. We get the term deacon from that. In those days, a diakonos was a table waiter. The diakonos was one who would consider others rather than himself. So he would be the one to serve the food and make sure everyone who is in the room would be fed and satisfied and taken care of. And only then would he have the opportunity to eat. His reason to be was to serve others, to care for the needs of others before his own. And then he says, Jesus does, that not only the great one shall be your servant, but he says, whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave. Now, whoever wishes to be first connects with the first category that Jesus mentioned in verse 25. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Rulers, first ones, lorded over. Kurios, that verb to lord over is the intensive form using that term that we know, kurios, but now he said, the first ones among my people, the first ones, what? Shall be your slave. A doulos. The exact opposite of a kurios. The slave was not someone who was free to do what he wished. But his whole life was bound to obey 
his master. Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus says here through this description that he says to his disciples, listen, you will not now sit on a throne. You will wait on tables. You will not now wear a crown. You will instead wear the towel to wash feet. You will not exercise power, but you will surrender your rights. That's Jesus' paradigm for leadership, for ministry in, among his people. Now, this looks very impossible, doesn't it? I mean, when you think of the problem of our ambition, and you think of the high calling of this contrary agenda, you might say, this paradigm is impossible. But Jesus goes on to make a very important statement in the final verse of our text. Verse 28, he says this, Just as, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we have the precedent. The precedent of the king's own atonement. The words just as introduce the basis for what Jesus has just given as his agenda. Just as. This radical paradigm for leadership would, would be impossible were it not for what Jesus has done or will do in the case of the perspective of these disciples. But in our case, as we look back on this, this radical paradigm would be impossible if it were not for the atonement of Christ and all that that atonement provides. What's fascinating to know here is that Jesus himself does not call his disciples, he does not call you and me to something that he, as the author and perfecter of our faith, would not himself model. And he articulates this precedent once again through another antithesis. And we can look at this last phrase, this very powerful climactic statement, again, in terms of of an antithesis of what he didn't do and what he did do, what his precedent isn't about and what it is about. Let's look at the first part of this phrase, verse 28, for the son of man did not come to be served. That's a very profound statement. On a number of accounts, first of all, just look at the title, Son of Man. Now, often it has been stated that the Son of Man is the title that represents Jesus' humility in contrast to his title as the Son of God, and that is not accurate. This title... Son of Man, is not a title of humility. It is a title of royalty. It is taken from, uh, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And, and this is important to read this text because Jesus is drawing from this text and it also helps us explain why the disciples had this idea of thrones in the first place. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read this. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, the disciples were fixated on that kingdom. They knew that this son of man, the Messiah, the king in their midst, would be the one to receive the kingdom from the ancient of days. They were focused on that reality. They wanted that reality and knew that once he gets his throne, then I get mine. But what they did not connect to this prophecy were all the other prophecies in the Old Testament that before this kingdom would come, the Messiah would have to atone 
for the sins of his people. And that's why Jesus said in his first coming, when he came as he did, in that coming, he did not come to be served. It was not the time. He came for a different purpose. And that is expressed in the final part of verse 28. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this contrast, it's, it's begun here in the second half with a very strong contrasting conjunction. You can make no mistake, Jesus says. And he says that in his first coming as the Son of Man... He has a twofold purpose. Notice, first of all, it is coming to serve. We hear, see here again th- this reference to the diakonos, and here it's a verb form, diakoneo, to, to serve, to wait on tables. It refers to that loyal, uh, lowly service, the kind that marked Jesus through those three years of earthly ministry as he healed the sick, as he washed feet, fed the hungry, lifted the brokenhearted, spent time with sinners, It was that service represented by three years of such kind of service that he would be worn out in his human strength and ability, worn out by the end of each day. But not only did he come to serve, but he also came to sacrifice. He came to serve and to give his life. This is another metaphor. To give the life is a picture of of death. And it's interesting to note here that previously, Jesus had said, it is not mine to give you your reward. That is determined by the Father. He said that to James and John. But now he says, this is what is mine to give. This is what I give. I give my life. It's not mine to exercise authority. It's mine to exercise sacrifice, Jesus says. And more than that, he goes on to say, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, as soon as we get to this point, this last clause, these last words of this verse automatically exalt this statement beyond what we can reduplicate. Yes, Jesus, in his drinking of the cup, serves as the the model for us in terms of service and sacrifice. That is ours to drink, but there is something about his atonement now that is utterly unique. There is something here that is beyond a standard for imitation, and that is he gave his life as a ransom. The term for ransom here is taken from the the typical language of that day to refer to what was called manumission, when there would be slaves and someone would come and purchase their freedom. It was a very powerful act because you didn't need to do that. It was purely an act of, in those days, an act of grace uh, and a mercy to, to give some kind of a payment to secure a slave's freedom. Jesus says here that he gives his life as the payment and he does so for, there's a specific nuance here in this, in this word that shows substitution at the highest level. That there's a direct exchange that happens. That as Jesus gives of his life, he gives it specifically on behalf of others. It is the life of the Son of Man for the lives of slaves, and it is given for the many. Notice it doesn't say all of mankind, but he specifically refers here to those who would be ransomed in actuality, ransomed in in specific terms. He gives his life for the many, his life for the slaves. This takes us back to to what we read of in another portion of the Old Testament. Now it's no longer Daniel, but this is Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verses 11 to 12. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In this last statement, Jesus explains what cannot be reduplicated by us, but nonetheless, which frees us up to accomplish what can be reduplicated in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The service and the sacrifice for us would be utterly impossible if we remained in our sins. True service, God-honoring sacrifice, is utterly impossible for one who has not been ransomed. There is no amount of sacrifice that you would do if, if you remain opposed to Jesus Christ, if you have not believed in him, confessed him as Lord, believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then no amount of, of, of charitable activity, no amount of personal sacrifice, none of that would be pleasing. None of that would, would classify, would qualify as the kind of sacrifice and service envisioned by Jesus in this text. It is the ransom of Jesus Christ that is paid for to release sinners from the bondage of their sin, from their iniquity and transgressions that frees us up now to actually serve and to sacrifice the way that Jesus Christ has shown us. And so the atonement of Jesus Christ frees us up first and foremost. And then in that secondary sense, it shows us the way to follow the Lord himself through service and sacrifice. Now, as we pull this all together and think about how does this relate to me as a Bible study leader? How does this relate to me as a deacon, deaconess? How does this relate to me in the different ministry that I do, women's ministry, men's ministry? All of us have this desire to be used. We want to be useful, an instrument All of us also in our flesh aspire to be great. And these words of Jesus apply to all of us, especially as we think of a a new ministry year ahead, as we think of our roles and responsibilities. Let's remember the example of Jesus that we must be servants and we must be slaves. We must serve and we must sacrifice. A few quotes here as we close. D.A. Carson in a book called The Cross and Christian Ministry, appropriate title for even what we call to today. It's a study from 1 Corinthians. But he says this in the book. He says, most people at some point or other dream of themselves becoming great leaders. What do their minds conjure up? Only rarely do those who dream of leadership but who have never experienced it think through the responsibilities, pressures, and temptations leaders face. Almost never Do they focus on accountability, service, and suffering? And then a statement by our pastor in a book he wrote called Called to Lead. He said this, According to Christ, then, the truest kind of leadership demands service, sacrifice, and selflessness. A proud and self-promoting person is not a good leader by Christ's standard, regardless of how much clout he or she may wield. Leaders who look to Christ as their leader and their supreme model of leadership will have servants' hearts. They will exemplify sacrifice. And so it leads to the final question, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to drink the cup? Just go back for just a moment to the life of James and John. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup. Think of their lives, what happened to them? James becomes the first martyr from among those disciples. John, as well, comes, we come to the end of the canon, we come to the book of Revelation, and he writes 
exiled on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. So if the Lord can do the work in their lives in leading them to that kind of an outcome and a glorious one for both of them, he can do that for us. May that be our prayer and may the Lord accomplish that work in us. Let's ask him to do that. Father, we see ourselves in the first part of this pericope. We see ourselves lining up be, behind James and John and, and then behind the other ten indignant disciples. We see ourselves striving for greatness, loving the exercise of authority. Our ambition is so preoccupied with these things. We're thankful for your patience and compassion and ultimately for your atonement which breaks the chains of enslavement to the flesh and to this world and gives us true freedom, freedom to live as you would have us to live, freedom to do so in a way that is pleasing in your sight. And in this church age, in this inter-advent age, as we await the coming of the Son of Man, your Son, we pray that you would enable us with an increasing appreciation to drink of this cup. I pray for each one here involved in ministry in the different places around Grace Community Church and in our group, that this would be a year of tasting of this cup unlike any other, of drinking it down deep, of making themselves available, surrendering their rights, sacrificing all because of the freedom Jesus has secured in his death and resurrection and because of this passion to live like him. Father, do this work among us for your glory's sake and for the good of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.